1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sociology. This is your hostess, Annie Sabukaya. Thank you for tuning in today. We are going to talk to Barry Schwartz, author of The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less, How the Culture of Abundance Robs Us of Satisfaction, published by Harper Perennial in 2004. Barry Schwartz is the Dorwin Cartwright Professor of Social Theory and Social Action at Swarthmore College. Since publishing Paradox of Choice, he has written about choice overload in our society for several publications, including The New York Times, Scientific American, Slate, USA Today, and The Guardian. He has also been interviewed for several TV shows and radio shows. His more recent book is called Practical Wisdom, which he co-authored with Kenneth Sharp. Practical Wisdom, The Right Way to Do the Right Thing published by Riverhead Trade in 2011. Good morning, Barry.
0: Good morning, Annie.
1: Hi. Okay, we are talking to you about your book, The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less, How the Culture of Abundance Robs Us of Satisfaction, published by Harper Perennial. Uh, First of all, why did you decide to write this book?
0: Well, that's actually a bit of a long story. Uh, I have been interested for 25 years in the way in which the ideology of economics has taken hold of societies. Uh, Economics is based on certain assumptions about human beings uh, as self-interested, as utility maximizing and so on. Uh, And those assumptions are almost across the board false. But it hasn't stopped economists from continuing to develop theories And it hasn't stopped us from designing institutions that are in the image that economists paint. So I've sort of taken a role as a critic of the economists' assumptions about human nature for a very long time. Uh, And one of the central justifications of market systems of uh, production and distribution is that they cater to choice. And choice is sort of the highest Value of Western democratic societies, right? The more choice people have, the better off they are, and uh, markets are what enable people to have choices. Mm-hmm. And so it occurred to me that, that it should be examined whether choice is an unalloyed good thing. Whether it's possible that um, that you know choice doesn't always serve our well-being, and. So this is a long process I went through. I wrote a couple of books on the limits of markets. Uh, and then this article came out that showed that when you give people too many choices, instead of liberating them, it paralyzes them. And that was all I, this was the first evidence, empirical evidence. It hadn't even occurred to anyone to look. Uh, and that sort of launched me on the project that became this book, The Paradox of Choice, which is mostly other people's work that I've, that I've written about.
1: Mm, Condensed, yeah. So what are some of the um, new choices that you see us having today in modern society that is just too much for us?
0: Well, well, so there are two categories of change. One is that in areas of life where we've always had choice, we now have a lot more. Um, Supermarkets add, I don't remember now, 5,000 new products a year. Department stores carry more and more, and, and online shopping has essentially given each of us the entire universe of goods at our disposal. So we're used to making decisions about what clothes to buy and what food to buy, and we just have now the choice set is larger. That's one category. But there's a second category, which is there are parts of life where we used to have any choice, where we now have substantial choice. Um, in the U.S., there the telephone, uh, telephone service was a monopoly. There was one phone company. Um, they made a couple of phones. You didn't even buy your phone. You rented it. So you didn't have any choice to make it. And now, as you well know, uh, deciding what phone, what company, what plan can be a completely consuming activity. Pensions used to be the company pension. Now, uh, companies give you a list of uh, 401k investment options, sometimes hundreds of, uh, of uh, items long, and you get to pick. Uh, uh,
1: in, it's interesting because in, you said that the more choices they give you actually, the, the less likely it is that anybody will actually choose a plan.
0: That's correct, and there's now evidence, um, and Sheena Iyengar is the person who's collected the evidence, that when you look at, uh, across different companies, the number of uh, mutual fund options they make available. Some make five available, some 15, some 50, and some several hundred. The more mutual funds there are, the less likely employees are to sign up at all. And by not signing up, they pass up, in many cases, significant matching money from the employer. But they just can't bring themselves to pull the trigger. When Medicare's uh, Part D prescription drug plan, as you probably know, the United States is the only country in the civilized world that fails to provide health care for its citizens so there was this gift to senior citizens we'll pay we'll pay for your prescriptions but, but the ideology of choice and the market made it so that instead of offering three or four plans for people to choose from then they, private companies uh, generate plans and and you know 65 75 year old people found themselves confronted with 50 60 70 different drug plans uh, and uh, they didn't sign up because they were worried they were going to make a big mistake, and they just postponed it. They asked their kids for advice. They asked their doctors for advice. They asked their pharmacists for advice. And even though this was a huge gift from the government, you basically had to bully people into signing up because they found it so so difficult. In universities, more and more uh, departments are unwilling to tell students what to study, you get this huge cafeteria menu of courses, and you can take whatever the hell you want. Which means that the, you know this again is supposed to be a good thing that now students have the choice instead of being told what to do. And the result, I think, is a bewildered generation of college graduates who waste half of their uh, half of their time taking ridiculous courses that they can't possibly extract any useful information from because they haven't been prepared. Um, And I think uh, in the romantic world, even, there's a sense in which any possible intimate relation, any intimate relationship you can conceive of is possible. There are not the kind of social norms that tell you that you have to get married, you have to have kids, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm.
1: That's entirely
0: up to us. And, and of course, there's something very good about that. But what's bad about it is you see an awful lot of people – 25, 30, 35 years old, who can't figure out what their intimate future is supposed to be like, and they end up having no intimate intimate present, So I think that there are all these areas where we used to basically have no choice, where we now have uh, substantial choice, and the evidence is that it, paraly- it, it liberates a small number of people and paralyzes a lot of people. And how do
1: you, how do you think that paralyzation... Occurs. You talk a lot about uh, people being sort of averse to loss, to losing an option.
0: Yep. Well, you know when you when you're confronted with, uh, imagine going to a to a restaurant, and two restaurants. One of them has five entrees and one has fifteen. So you're scanning the list and you're looking at the entrees, and when there are five, um, as you look down. You, you know, you you favor one, but you're thinking about if I choose that one, I miss out on this other one. And so you're worried that you're going to make a mistake. And the only way to avoid making a mistake is that you don't choose at all. And when there are five options, that's not nearly as uh, burdensome as when there are 15, because now you can imagine lots of possible options that are better than the one you choose.
1: You said that one of the areas where there's just way too much choice in that, Uh, Where it becomes damaging is the internet. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well,
0: so imagine that you're shopping for, oh, I don't know, a new pair of jeans. You go to a department store and they have 15 different styles to choose from, and none of them gets you really excited. So you get into your car and you drive across town to another department store and they've got another dozen. Well, there's a limit to how many department stores you're going to go to because of the cost involved in going from one to another.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: When you're looking at websites, there's no cost. You know, it's it's another two seconds. So um, you can end up essentially looking at every damn pair of jeans that exists in the world without ever moving a muscle, uh, except for your click finger and. Um, and i think what that it's the transaction costs that actually limit the amount of choice that people will seek eventually you know you have to get on with your life uh, and so you'll pick a pair of jeans um, but when there when you manage to eliminate transaction costs or reduce them essentially to zero then we look at everything and i can't tell you how often my wife or i will you know go up we were looking for some cheap item, a toaster, $20 item. And one of us will say, I'm just going to order a toaster. I'll be back in five minutes. And we come back two hours later, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. at, at, you don't make a plan that you're going to spend two hours buying a toaster. But having looked at a site and not found anything perfect, how much extra time does it take to go to the next set? Essentially none. And before you know it, you've blown. the email. And I think that's what, um, That's what the Internet does, and I think it does it in the social world, too. You know, these social media make it so easy to, quote, meet people, if that's what you're doing on Facebook. that You know, why not look at every eligible and interested person on the planet? You know, how much extra work is it? Whereas if you actually got to call somebody and make a date and meet the person and spend the evening, well, then you're – you're not going to be nearly as enthusiastic about having the whole world to choose from.
1: Right. There's more effort involved.
0: There's more effort involved. And that is, and that's self-limiting in the, you know, in the same way, I think parents learn this when they're raising kids, this may be a, un, a uniquely American thing, but you know, a mom or a dad will say to, to their three or four year old, what do you want for lunch? And this of course takes a, is a four hour process that you've just launched. So, The next time you don't say, what do you want for lunch? You say, do you want grilled cheese or peanut butter and jelly? Uh, And even that can take too long. And eventually you just say, here, eat your grilled cheese so we can go and do the errands I have to do. So (laughs) reality is what saves parents Mm -hmm. from basically torturing their children by giving them as much, you know, as much choice as is humanly possible.
1: Right, right. Well, you said that this kind of um, thing that society perpetuates and kind of sets the stage for is worse for some people than for others, and you call these people maximizers. Could you talk a little bit about that? Who are these maximizers, and why do they suffer so much?
0: So this is work that I actually did myself with with collaborators. Um, Think for a moment about how big a problem it is to have a large choice set if your aim is to get something that's good enough. You may have high standards, you may have low standards, but as soon as you encounter something that meets your standards, you'll choose it. Mm. Uh, Well, now, so people like that we call satisficers. You are not looking for the best jeans or the best dish on the menu, just a good enough one. Well, if that's your approach, then no matter how many items are there to be examined, you don't need to examine all of them. You simply examine until you find one that meets your standards and then you choose it. And so for people like this, large choice sets are not necessarily a problem Mm -hmm. because you won't look at all of them, but contrast that with people whose aim is to get the best. And these are people we call maximizers. You want the best jeans and the best dish on the menu and the best restaurant in town and so on. Well, the only way to know you've got the best is if you examine every single option. You need to search exhaustively to know that you have the best. And that's either exhausting or impossible. And so people who have that orientation are the ones who are especially plagued by large choice sets. And we have found that that's true, that people who score high on maximizing are are less satisfied with their lives, more frustrated, more worried about regret, uh, more disappointed in the decisions that they actually make and borderline clinically depressed. So it's really not a trivial thing mm-hmm. to go through life all, all, always seeking the best. It's not a problem in a, limit, in a world of limited choice because you, can, you can't examine all the options without a whole lot of trouble. But in the world we currently live in, it's really a recipe for, uh, for misery. And interestingly, we find that ma- people who maximize actually do better when it comes to making decisions. But they feel worse.
1: Hmm. Uh, Interesting. How do you measure that? How do you measure the objectivity of like what's better?
0: Well, you can't in a lot of areas. But the one the study that we did was job choice among college seniors.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: we used as a metric starting salary since they hadn't yet started their jobs. We couldn't assess what you know how much satisfaction they got from their job. So it was just starting salary. And maximizers got jobs that paid 20% more than satisficers did, which is a fairly substantial difference. Sure. Uh, Something like 44,000 versus 36,000, something like that. And by everything we could measure, they felt worse. They felt worse about the job they got. They felt worse about the job search process. And they felt worse about themselves more generally. So you do better you get a better result, you get a better pair of jeans, you get a better restaurant, you get a better job, and you feel worse. Um, and what I argue when, when I talk about this is that most of the time, what matters, it ma- how we feel about our decisions is, is more important than how good they actually are objectively.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you know, you don't want people making terrible decisions, but there's all among the options all of which are good it really isn't all that important that you get the best but if you're out to find the best then you're going to feel like you failed even if you even if you get the best so right, it's right. much better to settle for you will feel better when you get a good enough result than when you get the best result
1: that's really interesting because that's very much uh counterintuitive to well, maybe it's not counterintuitive, but it's certainly against the grain of what society tells us to, to do all the time.
0: Oh, it's completely against the grain, and I think it is counterintuitive as well. Um, and when I mention this, especially to audiences of young people, they just completely recoil. You know, <laughs> here they, I teach at a very selective institution, so these are great students, and they've all applied to all the best schools in the United States, and their model Uh, either self generated or generated from looking at their peers or generated by their parents is that they should find the best school and, you know, and go to the best school they can get into. And then, you know, they should get the best grades and get the best job. That's what life is about. It's about seeking the best. It's about having this incredibly high ambition. And they refuse to accept that that's not the right way to (laughs) go through life. And they say, listen, it's a problem for people like you because you're old. And you don't know how to use this technology that we use effortlessly. So for you, you know, all you see is problems, whereas we are masters of the universe. (laughs) I point point out to them that if they're such masters of the universe, then how come every school I know about has a demand for psychological services that it can't meet? Mm -hmm. Kids are flocking to counseling centers at every university in the United States. Why? If they're such masters of the universe.
1: That's interesting. Well, you do talk a lot about depression in in your book and how that kind of relates to the insatisfaction that people feel.
0: Yep. Well, yeah. I mean, imagine if you go through life making one decision after another and feeling bad about the decisions you've made. hmm And the point is not that you should feel bad about them. You might well have made great decisions. But if what you have in your mind is that somewhere out there is the perfect option, then every decision is going to feel like a failure.
1: Right. Right.
0: So you say, I'm the kind of person who can't make a good decision. And that, of course, makes you the kind of person who stops being able to make any decisions. Right. Uh, It's not surprising that this can lead to really significant emotional, um, negative emotional consequences.
1: Could you talk a little bit about the different strategies that people have for coping with decisions that when something goes wrong? People that tend to be more depressed and that tend to be maximizers, they come up with different – they come up with different reasons for why the decision went badly as opposed to people that are not like that.
0: Well, uh, um, one of the points that I that I uh, made in the book is um, is that suppose you – and this I think is the example I used. So suppose you're invited over someplace for dinner and you go to into a local – shop to buy a bottle of wine to bring to your hosts and the shop has 10 different kinds of white wine, uh, none of them particularly outstanding. So you buy a bottle and you bring it up and uh, people, and everyone drinks it and everyone agrees it's not very good. Uh, and the question you ask yourself and we always ask ourselves questions like this is why? Whose fault was it? What went wrong? And when, when you're choosing from a limited set, The answer, it seems to me, is pretty obvious. It's the world's fault. What could I do? They only had a few options. None of them were great. I did the best I could. Now contrast that with going into a store that has several thousand different kinds of wine, and you buy a bottle, and you bring it to your host, and everyone drinks it and agrees that it isn't very good, and again, you ask why, whose fault was it, and you can't tell yourself anymore that it was the world's fault, because there, the whole world was laid out in front of you and you bought a bad bottle of wine. So now it's your fault. And I think as a general matter, when we make decisions that disappoint us and, um, and we've chosen from a large set of possibilities, it's inevitable that we will blame ourselves for failure instead of blaming the world for failure. And I think that contributes to the emotion, negative emotional impact of um, disappointing decisions. And understand, this is not about it being an objectively bad decision. It's, a, it's good enough to be a decision that you think is a bad decision, even if by some objective standard it was a good decision. Right. That makes sense?
1: Yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> it does. Like you said, you have you might even make the better decision, but you feel worse about it.
0: Exactly. And, so in,
1: I- and it's, it's just about, well, what is important? Is it an objective measure or is it how you feel?
0: And as you pointed out, in most of the decisions we make in our lives that really matter, there is no obvious uh, uh, objective metric to use to assess the quality of decisions. Right. You know, what is the best restaurant? That's a subjective matter.
1: Uh,
0: And so if you feel bad about your choice, that's really the only thing that matters. You can't I can't say to you, listen, you shouldn't feel bad about it. It's a great restaurant and you had a great meal. And you say, well, no, I didn't have a great meal. I'm the judge of whether I had a great deal, and it wasn't a great deal. And most of the time, with jobs, with romantic partners, with friends, with apartments, it's it, these are inherently subjective assessments. And mm-hmm. if we are predisposed to look negatively at the results of our decisions, we will manage to feel bad about decisions that we shouldn't feel bad about.
1: Right, exactly. You also mentioned that there's a difference between... Anticipated regret and post decision regret. What is the difference between those two?
0: Well, I have a feeling they go together, but but um you can make a choice in a restaurant and eat it, and as you're eating it, feel like this wasn't a good choice. So you've made a decision, you're experiencing the results of the decision, and you're shaking your head, you know, I got the salmon, but I should have gotten the chicken. Mm-hmm. The anticipated regret is that you are so worried. You're worried that when you make a choice, you will end up regretting the choice that you've made. And one of the points I make in the book is that it is this aspect of regret, the anticipation of it, that produces the paralysis. Because there's really only one way to avoid regretting a decision, and that is by not making it. Yes. And I think a lot of the reason why people defer decisions till tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow is that they don't want to regret whatever decision they make. That's uh,
1: interesting. And you said that in the short term, that works. But in the long term, people tend to regret what they haven't done.
0: Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it works. You, 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 if you could manage to find a way to live your life without ever making a decision, <laughs> then you'd never have anything to regret. Right. But, right. But the problem is that. When you ask people to look, looking back on their, when you ask people what, what, what uh, about your life in the last few months do you most regret? They almost always choose things they have done that have not worked out. You know, I drank too much at this party. I I, uh, I asked the wrong person to this uh, event. So I went to the wrong place on vacation, stuff like that. But when you ask people. Looking back over their lives over a longer term, what do they most regret? Overwhelmingly, people most regret things they did not do. Mm-hmm. You know, I should have studied th- uh, this, but I didn't. I should have taken the opportunity to go and uh, teach English in Brazil, but I didn't. Uh, <laughs> so it's mostly regrets of omission that, are the, that sting people. Um, over, when you look back over your life as, as a whole. And if you're so worried that you're going to regret decisions that you don't make them, then your life, when you start looking back on it as a whole, is going to be one missed opportunity after another. Right. So one in the yeah. end, it's really a bad, it's a bad way to be.
1: Yes. Well, one thing that I found really interesting in your book is how, uh, in your chapter, Choice and Happiness... You talk about social ties and how you even mention um, bowling alone, the book "Bowling Alone," um, and how when you when you have close social ties, people's levels of satisfaction tend to go up, and yet that decreases freedom, and yet it's still good for you. Like, how does that happen?
0: Yeah, well, I you know what I used to think. Well, first let me just I think you 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 got it exactly right, but let me unpack it just a bit because okay. it might not, might not be transparent uh, how. Um, social connections reduce freedom. Um, My understanding at any rate of meaningful social connections is that you care enough about maintaining these connections and about the welfare of the people you're connected to that you won't go anywhere to take a job and you won't do anything because you feel constrained to stay in proximity to this network of close associates So all of a sudden you're looking for jobs within, uh, I don't know, an hour's drive of Toronto instead of any place in North America. Uh, So it's in that sense, it limits your options. Nonetheless, as you said, people that seems to be the most important determinant of our sense of well-being is how connected we are to other people. So it seems like it's a paradox. And what I used to think is that the power of social ties is so great that even though it reduces freedom, the benefits outweigh the costs. That's what I used to think. What I now think is that in the modern world, at least in the modern world in affluent Western societies, things that limit choice actually are beneficial because they limit choice. So now there's a double benefit to having close ties to other people. One is the benefit of the close ties themselves. And the other is that it takes lots of options off the table. And we live in a time when we need to have options taken off the table.
1: There, um, I was thinking about how, for example, if you have people that are, I don't know if this is at all related, but um, I was watching that TV show Hoarders the other day. I don't know if you've seen it. I have not. It's about people who, you know, have, have hoarding issues they just can't let go of their stuff and they're forced to when the therapist comes in and tries to help them to sort it out they really cannot handle it because the therapist says okay are we going to donate this or throw it away or are you going to keep it and they just can't make the decision and (laughs) that's kind of how they get into that situation where their houses become completely unlivable (laughs) do you see that as being related to this
0: i think it's quite possible um Although I think there's another thing going on a little bit of what you mentioned this before also of, uh, of loss aversion concern about loss. Um, You know, you, you buy something, you have it and you want to get your money's worth and to get rid of it is in some sense to admit that you made a mistake. Um, If you keep it, there's no loss. If you get rid of it, there's a loss. And this is true, even if you never use it. So, uh, Uh, An economist who's written about this describes, and I'm sure we've all had this experience, uh, you buy a pair of shoes, an expensive pair of shoes, and it looks lovely and they feel great. But then when you actually put them on, it turns out they hurt like hell. So you take them off and you put them in your closet. You don't Mm -hmm. throw them away because that would acknowledge a loss. Instead, you keep them in your closet for six months for Mm -hmm. a year for a year and a half, for three years. And now, since you've owned them for three years, you feel like you've gotten your money's worth. Now, now you can get them. So, you know, kind of amortize your investment over three years, even though all they have done for those three years is occupy a dusty corner of your closet. Uh, and I think a lot of what goes on with hoarding may be a reflection of uh, this unwillingness on uh, uh, people's part to acknowledge that they made a mistake.
1: Right. So all of these things about the economy, which we often think of as really objective things. I mean, I don't think about feelings when I think, oh, economy, you know, um, but you say actually a lot of it is how we buy and how we spend and, and what we do really has to do with how we feel about it.
0: Sure. And, you know, this yeah. is a, this is acknowledged by economists, although it almost never services in the daily newspapers. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what economists are talking about is decision makers who maximize utility, not wealth, but utility. Mm -hmm. Now, money is a pretty good proxy for utility. Utility means usefulness, satisfaction, value, all of which are subjective. Money is a good proxy for utility because we can take the money and use it to buy whatever we want.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, you get utility out of fancy meals, I get utility out of um, first editions of classic books. We, we we have different tastes, but whatever it is, money can be used to satisfy all of those things or almost all of those things. So what really we're after is utility, but what we actually measure is money, is wealth, is GDP. Now what's happened in the popular media is the connection between money and utility has simply vanished. And People simply treat wealth, GDP, as if that's all you need to know to assess the well-being of, uh, of society, and it isn't. Um, and uh, uh, as I say, economists knew that, have always known it, but it has disappeared when they actually talk about uh, what's good or bad for the economy and what's good or bad for society.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, on the conservative side of uh, of the, you know, of the uh, divide, um, there's a lot of talk about freedom. It seems that any time that the government comes up with any plan to do anything, it's a curtailment of freedom, and therefore, we're all going to die. Um, I'm exaggerating, but um, <laughs> there's this kind of aversion to anything that would limit freedom. <laughs> um nope. Do you think that's just
0: a political thing or? No, I don't. Well, I think it varies. You know, the, the spectrum on the right includes some people who I think are absolutely consistently committed to maximizing freedom. They call themselves libertarian. And these are people who in the U.S. don't want the government regulating markets particularly, but they also don't want the government in our bedrooms. Mm hmm. Uh, it's hard to find mainstream Republicans in the U.S. who are consistent in that way. By and large, the people who want you the government to get its hands off business are the same people who want the government to keep its hands enmeshed in birth control, gay marriage, and all other kinds of social issues. Yeah. So there's nothing consistent about them. Mm-hmm. But there are people, a minority of people, who are consistent in their uh, Commitment to maximizing freedom no matter what people should be free to make decisions that are bad for them, mm-hmm. because that's how important freedom is. Um, do,
1: do you disagree with that? I
0: do, I, yes, I do disagree. Uh, um, I'm, I, I mean, I, I'm I guess I'm enough of a sort of utilitarian mm-hmm. to be interested in social structures that enhance our well-being. And I don't uh, we know that people are often not the best judge of what's in their best interest mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, the state can play a very useful role in um, if not imposing uh, decisions on people nudging people. This nudge is a word that guy Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein used. they wrote a book called Nudge where mm-hmm. you can you can engineer the choice environment so that it it is easy for people to make good decisions and hard, but not impossible for them to make bad ones. So you're not forcing people to save for their retirement. I'll give you a concrete example. Mm -hmm. With 401ks, the typical mode is that you, uh, an employee, have to opt in to participating in your company's retirement plan. Mm -hmm. That is, you've got to sign a form that gives the company permission to withhold a certain amount of your paycheck and put it into some kind of a retirement instrument. If you switch it so that you have to opt out, which is to say that as soon as you start working, money will be withheld and put into a retirement instrument unless you tell your employer not to. Mm-hmm. You triple the rate of, at which people participate in retirement.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, they have a choice either way. It's just right. that, um, the default. What what happens if they do nothing in one case is no money gets put aside. In the other case, money gets put aside. But you can always opt uh, in or opt out. So you haven't deprived people of a choice, but what you've done is make it easy for people to choose what's in their best interest by organizing things so that if they don't choose, they get what's in their
1: best interest. Right. I imagine that this would be useful like uh, with the obesity epidemic as well, with making... Uh, sure that good choices are available to people, more available than the bad ones.
0: And in fact, this has been studied. If you, um, In school cafeterias, if you put the, uh, I don't know, the taco salad in the front and the pizza behind it, you dramatically increase the number of kids who choose the taco salad. Mm-hmm. If you put um, the milk, uh, loaf, milk in front and uh, soft drinks behind it, you dramatically increase the number of kids who choose milk. If you put a bowl of fresh fruit right by the cashier, you dramatically increase the number of kids who choose a piece of fruit. So you're not forcing kids to eat healthy. All the crappy options are still there, but it's a little bit harder to choose the crappy ones and a little bit easier to choose the, the healthful ones, and you have a big impact on On food choice by uh, by high school kids. You wouldn't think. And I'm not talking about, you know, you got to go up three flights of stairs to get a piece of pizza. It's really a very small, subtle change in the architecture of the options. And it produces a big effect on uh, how people um, make food choices.
1: What do you mean when you say that Human beings are remarkably be, uh, remarkably bad at predicting how experiences will make them feel.
0: Um. So this is a field of research in psychology that is sometimes called affective forecasting. Affect meaning emotion. Right. Predict forecasting meaning meaning predicting how I will feel after I've made the choice. Every decision we make is a prediction. Um, you know, if you acknowledge the subjectivity of decisions, every decision, what we are doing is predicting how it will feel to have the salmon versus how it will feel to have the chicken, how it will feel to go to a small college versus how it will feel to go to a large university. Um, and unless we can predict accurately, we can't possibly be making good decisions. And there's now a lot of research that shows that people are incredibly bad at predicting how they will feel After they've made a decision. And um, I think the single thing that's most salient is that we fail to uh, account for the fact that we will adapt to whatever it is we've chosen. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you buy a new car and it's thrilling and, um, you know, you're you're riding high with a big smile on your face. And that's the way you feel for a couple of weeks. But once you get used to your car, it's just your car. And if people appreciated that, they might not spend $70,000 on cars because they're only getting a hedonic kick for a very short time. And they certainly wouldn't spend months deciding what car to buy if they were only going to get a hedonic kick out of it for a very short time. We dramatically uh, underappreciate that uh, there's something in the, sort of, the dynamics of our emotional systems that's going to be pulling us back toward neutral. Over time, as we get used to things,
1: mm. yeah, you, you talk about how lottery winners are ecstatic at first, but after a while, they're really no more happier than anybody else.
0: Right, and and you know, there's a classic study that studied people who'd been made paralyzed by accidents and people who'd won more than fifty thousand dollars in a lottery. And the study is thirty years old, so fifty thousand dollars was—I mean, it's a lot of money now, but was even more money then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a huge as you might imagine, there's a huge difference between people who get paralyzed and people who win lotteries and they're both very different from, you know, sort of every, all the rest of us. Right. You get paralyzed and you really feel terrible. You win a lottery and you really feel great. But three months out from this event, the lottery winners are almost indistinguishable from non-lottery winners and astonishingly, the paralyzed people are only slightly less happy than uh, non-injured people, um, and one reason is that we miss, we we don't anticipate that we'll adapt. Another is what people call focalism. We, you know, when you become paralyzed, all you can think about, reasonably enough, is all of the things that you were able to do yesterday that you won't be able to do today. Mm-hmm. But there are lots and lots of things you did yesterday that won't be affected by your being paralyzed right? And and those just get completely obliterated and ignored in the short run. But as you go back to living your life and you read and you, you know, you interact with people in various ways, those things are not terribly much changed. And those things comprise the bulk of your day-to-day activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we focus on the respect in which this new st- state we're in is going to change our lives and ignore all of the respects in which it's not going to change our lives. And the result is that we overestimate the impact of this new new status. Um,
1: Whether it's good or bad.
0: Whether it's good or bad, that's exactly right, whether it's good or bad. Um, And uh, so people need help in making decisions because we are collectively pretty bad at predicting how the decisions are going to make us feel. And I think the best strategy, you know, people don't like what I'm about to say either. The best strategy is instead of trying to predict how you're going to feel, ask somebody who has already made the decision how they feel. That is to say, use other people as a predictor of how you're going to feel. They've already been through it. They can tell you, you know, it's no big thing. A car is just a car. And now maybe it changes the way you think about buying a new car. Uh, the reason we resist this is that we tend to, especially in the West, we haven't we place enormous um, stock in our uniqueness as individuals. And the idea that the best way for me to know how I'll feel is by asking you how you feel sort of suggests that, you know, basically we're the same. We're, I'm not unique. Uh, right. Uh, I learn more about myself by asking you than I will by asking myself. Uh, people don't like that suggestion, although I think it's actually a good suggestion and <laughs> and, uh, and captures what the empirical research says about our limits as uh, as predictors of our future emotional
1: states. Wow. Well, this has been a really fascinating conversation. But before we end, I'd like to ask you about your new book that, has come out already or is it coming out this no, year?
0: No, it's, it's out. It's been out about a year.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, I wrote it with a political scientist named Kenneth Sharp and it's about a completely different topic. It's called Practical Wisdom The Right Way to Do the Right Thing. And what it focuses on is how w- when our institutions fail us schools, medical, political, legal you name it. We, have two, we rely on two tools to try to fix them. One set of tools is to come up with more and more rules and more and more scripts, detailed procedures, and insist that people follow them. And the other is to come up with clever incentives that will get people to do the right thing because they do well by doing good. And the argument in the book is that you will never get what you need from people from either rules or incentives. What you need is character. You need people who want to do the right thing because it's the right thing, and the central component of character that makes this possible is what the philosopher Aristotle called practical wisdom. Mm. Uh, so this book is about what wisdom is, why we need it, what um, uh, it, structures in modern society seem to be corroding it, and how you can change those structures so that wisdom gets nurtured instead of being, uh, being defeated. And it will, will, probably won't shock you that the, the main argument in the book is that in our efforts to make things better, mm-hmm. we have almost, without exception, resorted to tools that actually in the long run make them worse.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, Barry, thank you so much for being with us today.
0: It's been my pleasure. You yes, asked great question.
1: You've been listening to an interview with Barry Schwartz, author of The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less. How the Culture of Abundance Robs Us of Satisfaction. This is your hostess, Annie Sepukaya. Thank you for listening to New Books in Sociology.